Portal in the Forest, Chapter 5 Written by Matt Demersky and narrated by Eunice Randall I awoke instantly, my senses blazing. By rote, I traced back the sound still caught in my auditory sensory memories, a creaking floorboard. My eyes were already locked on him as he came around the corner in the dark. He didn't see me for several seconds. A little jump signified the moment he became aware of my silhouette sitting against the wall. You're hard to find, Thomas breathed, nervous. I nodded, aware that he could see my outline by the vague glow of house porch lights outside. By design, never let the enemy know where you sleep. He hesitated. What enemy? A heavy sense of reality descended upon me, and I entertained a light disappointment in myself. None, I guess. It's hard to leave behind certain paranoias. My big sister went to war, he said. She came back a lot like you. The kid was wiser than his years. I had to give him that. I could only nod again. He came and sat beside me in the dark. I've been looking for you for hours. I had no idea there were so many abandoned houses in the neighborhood. (laughs) That's half the reason I've stuck around here so long. I laughed quietly. One world falls apart, and another seeps into the cracks. My own words gave me pause, like some kind of accidental prophecy. I'd only been speaking of his suburb, overworked parents, and inequality-strained society, but the words themselves reflected something of our conflict with the portal. "'What's the other half?' he asked. "'What?' The other half of the reason you stay. Oh. I stared around the empty, shadow-lit room for several seconds. I'd been running from it for so long. It felt like time to release my wound, cleanse my infection. Recent events had permanently damaged my internal armor. The scars I'd built up had been stripped away, leaving raw, bleeding pain in their stead. I had a daughter once. She was about your age when she... Well... It was his turn to say it. Oh. He took three deep breaths, not sure what to say. What was she like? Tough, I admitted. Awesome, really. She had simply endless willpower and always found a way through every problem in life. She grew up to be very pretty, too, even despite the condition she was in. He made a confused noise. I thought she... Right, yes, I corrected myself, my head fuzzy with regret. I saw her. She gave me the eye-worker device you're training. But it wasn't her. Just a version of her from that reality. That must have been very hard for you. Wiser than his years? This kid was more of a respectable adult than I. 
Are you still going to help us? He asked, after two or three quiet minutes spent thinking. I don't know if I can, I replied honestly. The last time I tried to... I shook my head, choking up. No matter how much you anticipate, no matter how smart you are, or how fast you are, sometimes it just doesn't matter. Sometimes there just isn't a way out. He sniffled. I don't want to believe that. What's the alternative? Believing that if my daughter had just made different choices, she'd still be alive? That it's her fault she... Is it your fault, though? He interrupted. Or should you blame the thing that got her? To that, I had nothing to say. This boy, this young man, had somehow hit right to the heart of the issue. He slumped down. I'm starving. But apparently he was still a young man, and moments of wisdom were fleeting in young men. Don't you have any food at home, I asked. He didn't reply. Reaching over to rummage around in my oversized travel backpack, I reached past my laptop, various sundries, one saved shoe with special dirt on it, and spare clothing to fish out a $10 bill. I placed it in his surprised hand. Take it. Get something to eat. Really? Really. Thanks, he said, sincere. I'll go in the morning. He curled up against the wall, preparing to sleep. I frowned, but I couldn't stop him sleeping where he wanted. Did he not feel safe at home? By the ambient light drifting in from the windows, I could see an ugly bruise around his right eye. Make sure you eat till you're practically sick. Really glut on some heavy fast food. He laughed. I sure will. Sometime late at night, I'd intended on initiating my plan to safely view the objective image of the problematic book. But it didn't seem fair to leave the boy unprotected. I kept the paper with the deadly schematic rolled up safely in my backpack and waited up while he slept. It was a simple matter to stay awake and alert for hours on end. I coughed and started, suddenly awake, and oddly rested. It felt like I'd had a soul-weary weight lifted, at least for a little while. How had I fallen asleep like that? If anything had happened, it would have been unforgivable. A scream of absolute terror resounded in the cul-de-sac outside. Rushing forward on my hands and feet after telling Thomas to remain quiet, I peered out through the corner of one window. A boy I recognized ran from house to house, knocking on the door of each. Frowning, I darted over and threw open our front door. What's going on? The boy saw me and ran up to me, shouting his fearful message, They're in trouble! Run with me, I ordered quickly, dashing toward the old Dodson lot and the paths beyond. 
the exhausted boy followed suit as best he could, and Thomas was not far behind. What's the situation? The panting, red-faced boy let out his story between ragged breaths. Danny tried to take the book through the portal on his own. I don't have the book with me, I asked, furious at the 18-year-old's misguided bravado. No, he stole it from you, he explained, starting to lag behind. But the portal suddenly got bigger and they all fell through. Falling to his knees, he shouted his last information. And they were all on the other side, screaming and running from something. My heart seized. Why wouldn't they just go back through the portal? Something had clearly gone wrong with the main egress in a fundamental way. Thomas kept pace with me a few feet behind as I ran. Go to Susie's portal and tell them to start unburying it, I ordered, giving no time for debate. Thomas nodded and sprinted off in another direction. I soon crested the final hill, curving up above the Virginia forest and back down beneath the canopy in seconds, only to tumble to a painful and wrist-spraining halt. The portal had ruptured even further. Space hung like a sheet flapping in the wind on an invisible clothesline. No semblance of the original ten-foot portal remained, nor the thirty-foot gash I'd seen last. Instead, the path and brush on both sides had been consumed by unstable rifts, a clearing of deadly anomalies nearly three hundred feet in length by my best guess. Ten feet, thirty, roughly two seventy. The portal energy wasn't expanding geometrically. It was growing exponentially. By that same comparison, tomorrow the corrupted space would be a mile and a half wide. The day after that, I clutched the gritty dirt between my hands tightly for a moment. 111 miles. As far as I'd seen, the portals had clung to the surface. I had no way of knowing if the rifts were underground in a spherical area, too. But this area of spatial disturbance seemed largely rebuffed by the density of the ground beneath. But a hundred and eleven miles. And the day after that, the numbers began escaping me, but at least twenty-five thousand miles. Which happened to be almost exactly the circumference of the earth. The numbers might have escaped me, but the neatness of that value did not. This was a darkly ironic challenge from forces beyond comprehension. Save the world in two days, or lose it on the third. In this exact moment, all I could worry about were the thirty-odd children stranded in another reality. The portal had been stable for weeks before I'd interfered. Was all this somehow my fault? A dark grip caught my chest. How many children had to die because of me? Eyeing the maelstrom of spatial contortions, I waited, 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 and leaped. I slid through a small oval barely big enough to fit me, and the blinking rift took one of my shoes at the last, barely sparing me my foot. Already tired from the run, I pushed myself wearily up, and then observed the world that the children had thought safe enough to visit briefly. A ruddy sky swirled high over an endless plain of cracked obsidian. 
The sun hung huge and red in the sky, seemingly much older than the star I knew. My shoed foot crunched as I moved, and my bare foot fought for purchase among smooth, flat stones that were dully jagged along the sides. Glassy black spread out to the horizon. What had the children been running from? I turned to look behind me. The main portal was a mess of little blinking rifts and clearly unusable, but that was not the problem, not in the least. A wall of fire approached across the endless obsidian plain, perhaps half a mile out. It came as a sheer, smooth curtain of flame, horizon to horizon, cast down from the sky itself by glowing little glints in what looked like low-Earth orbit. Satellites? For what purpose? Why would this planet be... I looked down at the obsidian beneath my feet. Continually cleansed. Fuck logic. Fuck explanations, my brain screamed. A wall of fire is coming for you. Run! Even in panic, I turned and looked for the children, quickly finding several multicolored dots against black glass in the distance. I was already tired, but not like this. I couldn't let them die like this. Go! Foot down. Push. Foot down. Push. Breathe. Faster. 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 Breathe. 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 Come on. The kids were moving away at a pace fueled by fear, but I had to catch them. They were running directly from the wall of fire, but the portal manned by Susie's crew was down an offset vector. I felt my personal top speed hovering back and forth before me. My legs pumped numbly, my feet crunched and bled, and my arms caught the seared air, but that intangible wall of speed danced just out of reach. I knew I could go slightly faster. I knew it, but I just... I stumbled and fell, falling onto a surprisingly whole plate of volcanic glass. My right wrist roared fire, and my entire body tingled with relentless weakness, but I stumbled right back to my feet. Wait! The shout rang out in clear air, barely audible over the low roar of oncoming flame. Wait! I screamed again, going for a high note. As I kept staggering forward, I saw the kids slow and turn. Exhausted themselves, they could only wait for me to catch up. As I kept staggering forward, I saw the kids slow and turn. Exhausted themselves, they could only wait for me to catch up. I entered a circle of sweaty, fearful, drained, and smiling faces. I knew you'd come to save us, said Danny, the eldest. I took a pained breath and tried to stand tall. I don't know if I can save us, but... I couldn't let you face this alone. He gave a tired nod. What's the plan? I ordered Thomas to run to Susie's crew and tell them to unbury their portal. That one's only... I know, I said, cutting him off before he told the other kids. Come on, 
Calculate the direction. I estimate we've gone two miles directly east of the main portal. Susie's portal will be our escape, and it's 4.9 miles southeast of the main portal, offset by 22 degrees from the line we've been traveling. Which direction should we head exactly? Faced by surprise math homework, the kids huddled in a massive circle and debated the numbers. I had an answer in mind, but it was important that they felt it by getting it themselves. And a second check never hurt. Finally, they all looked up and pointed. That way, I asked, slowly recovering my breath. Thirty-two children nodded in unison. All right, I prompted them. How long have you been here? The wall of fire crossed the main portal when I was a half mile away. I estimate it's still a half mile away. How fast do you think it's moving? How fast do we have to move? They huddled again, and the answer came 44 seconds later. Danny stood tall above the others. Best guess. We have to move 4.1 miles an hour towards Susie's portal to outrun it. Another darkly ironic number. All right, we've trained for this, I announced, sloughing off the worst of my exhaustion. Exactly this scenario, although it was a hypothetical gas creature then. It's possible, and you know that, right? We can survive this. Thirty-two grim faces nodded in response. Then let's set out. I took up the lead, walking slightly faster than the four miles an hour rate that I simply knew by muscle memory. That gas creature had been anything but hypothetical once, and I'd spent four days in Louisiana backcountry escaping it. I'd been sixteen then, in my first encounter with the supernatural, but that endless struggle had never left me. And I hoped that long-ago determination would transfer to these kids— They were all already depleted and terrified, but the human body had more to give than any of them knew. All they had to do was keep pace. Teenagers, boys, girls, and children walked together, pushing their walking stances to the limit. It was too fast to walk comfortably and too slow to run easily, so we were caught at the worst speed possible. Still, we pushed on. The crunching of 66 feet filled the air, mercifully drowning out the sound of the approaching wall of fire. Give it back, I told Danny, who kept the lead beside me. What were you thinking? Breathing hard, he looked away, clutching the tome in hand. You left. I had to, I told him. I was wounded. You didn't look hurt. I gulped. I was, and I still am, inside. But I'm sorry I left. He set his jaw with resentment, but handed me the book. I took it with unhappy anticipation. This world was strange enough that I needed to know if any threats waited between us and our escape. After stealing myself, I opened the book to the back pages. I knew it hadn't been my imagination. Each day had been slightly warmer than the last, 
until all the snow had melted and people were out in shorts. An Indian summer, they called it, for some reason. Others laughed about global warming. It was global warming, all right, though not for the reasons anyone suspected. Most began sensing something wrong with the night soon after that. It was subtle, really, but disruptive to sleep. Nighttime just wasn't as dark as it used to be. The first reports came out that week, with the first inexplicable data. The stars were growing brighter. It was light. Light was our problem. The stars had grown 12% brighter than previous recorded values. All the stars, all at once, for no measurable reason that anyone could discern. What could make the entire universe grow more luminant all at once? But see, that was the wrong question. The sun and the moon were both affected too. The moon became a painful white beacon in the sky, illuminating the night with stark silver. Sunglasses became mandatory during the day, along with sunblock, air conditioning, and shade. It was rather astounding how long life went on as normal. People turned up the air in their cars, stayed indoors, and let technology furiously resist the growing heat. As a scientist, I had a rather longer-term view of our situation, and I wondered what they would do once the crops started dying and the food stopped being shipped in. Nope, that didn't happen. My intelligent colleagues adapted. The food harvests dipped for a year, but then shot up on the next, as a global initiative switched major crops all over the world toward genetically engineered plants that thrived on the extra light, 42% more than usual, and climbing. From that perspective, things actually started to look up. The added heat and light were just more energy for the human race to capture and use. Fossil fuels crashed in favor of solar, which now never, ever had dull moments. When the sun went down, the moon and the stars took over energy duty. With almost all of our energy being produced cleanly, and the atmosphere undergoing severe weather changes, the global temperature actually began to drop back down for a time. It was enough time for us to prepare. Thanks to the heat, war ended as a thing, it was simply impossible to field troops, and energy and food had become practically free, so what was left to fight over? More than that, we had a global threat on our hands, and the human race banded together to overcome. The weird thing about all this, though, was that the light wasn't the right color. It was growing more and more blue, regardless of source, and we simply had no idea why. I was stationed in one of the pleasantly temperate Antarctic stations for several years. I'd never really had family, per se, and I'd certainly never had more than passing relationships. I'd mostly been a loner that observed the world and felt isolated from it. So my sudden placement with thousands of intelligent and capable colleagues was a shock. I made friends. We debated philosophy, argued about the cause of the blue brightening, and played clumsy games of volleyball. We drank alcohol like our military staff, to excess, and then regretted it utterly. We even raided the biology lab's dorms with water balloons. They retaliated by stealing a month's supply of pudding from our cafeteria. All in all, I'd have to describe it as the slowest and most pleasant apocalypse imaginable. Over the years, and ever so slowly, that pleasantness began to unravel 
as the level of incoming light from the rest of the universe reached double, and then triple. The surface became a scorching azure desert that was all but unlivable. Our temperate Antarctic outpost became a savanna, and then turned tropical, until finally, all the plants except our genetically engineered supercrops died. It was strange to look back on half a life, and on a youth spent unhappy and apart from the world as it was, only to find that world gone. Of the seven billion people alive at the start of our decades of heating, almost all had moved underground, into space, or onto the new cities on the now strikingly sapphire moon. The first colony to successfully set up on Mars soon had terrifying news for us. It wasn't blue out there, and it wasn't brighter out there. The technology we'd sent out into the solar system hadn't been malfunctioning. With their very eyes, the first interplanetary pioneers confirmed it. There was nothing wrong with the universe at all. There was something wrong with us. The theory had already been proposed, of course. Now a civilization of scientists, we'd had plenty of time to guess. Politics had split along ideological lines, but now we had proof. The slow time bubble theory was correct. For unknown reasons, the Earth and the Moon both had been encompassed in a slow time field that was growing ever stronger. The universe wasn't brighter. It just had more time to shower us with light, and that light had been growing more and more blue-shifted due to the time dilation. It took another 30 years for us to figure out why. In the meantime, we watched the Mars colonies rapidly expand, terraform, cover the red planet with humanity, and then, just as quickly as they had come, they were gone. An expedition sent there found nothing but a world of silent, monolithic cities that were hundreds of thousands of years old. Except we weren't that bad off. Not yet. The Mars colony should only have aged a few hundred years to our two decades. The opposite of our fate had happened to them. They had been caught in a fast-time field. The sun and stars had faded to weak, red-shifted darkness, and they'd all starved, died, and faded away in the blink of an eye. Strangely enough, the fast-time field had departed with them, and the reason behind both our predicaments revealed itself from an impossible vector— our food. Specifically, a bacteria living in the roots of our genetically modified crops. Somehow a bacteria had evolved with time-slowing properties. The cellular organism itself existed in dimensions higher than three-plus time. Its internal structure literally branched off into higher dimensions, and an emergent property of its shape was to bend the fabric of time. We had no idea whether this organism had evolved on Earth, or whether it had fallen from space, but it was here. And as we'd planted more and more of it globally, the bacteria had grown in total number and our problem had worsened exponentially. Mars had had the opposite problem. With its own genetic crops, adapted to live in a much different environment, they had unwittingly bred a new kind of bacteria that had sped up time instead of slowing it down. Just like that, ambient cellular life had wiped away a planet. And when those crops on Mars had died, so had their fast-time bacteria. It was strangely ironic that Mars, the red planet, had died in a lethal red shift. And now Earth, the blue, was dying in its respective color, too. 
We knew what the problem was now, but the problem presented itself. How do you cleanse an entire planet of all cellular life? Nothing we had could fight it. It didn't respond to antibiotics, and our three-dimensional nanomachines simply couldn't interact properly with the multi-dimensional bacterial cells. The only solution we found was the oldest answer in the book. Fire. We'll come back once the earth is cleansed. We'll come back, and we'll start anew. We'll just escape to the moon for a time, and then it'll all be fine. I'm boarding the ship in an hour, or I should be when it gets here. The people on the moon are supposed to be sending the fleet to pick up the two or three billion people still here, but there's been no contact yet. I'm not sure what we're doing about food and supplies for everyone, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. Humanity has evolved beyond selfishness, cruelty, and repugnant survival instincts. That's what I tell myself, at least. I got to live a mediocre life, and I got to feel at least partially like a person for a time, partially included, and for that I'm thankful. The crowd is growing restless out here in the blasting blue sands, all waiting in their hermetic suits. But what's an old man to tell them? There are children out here, so many children, and telling them that nobody's coming would only be cruel. But I really thought they wouldn't turn the satellite cleansing system on with us still out here. At least let us get back underground so we don't see it coming. You sick sons of bitches. And they're running. The crowd is running. Intent on going east. Moving east to escape the cleansing ever east. How long can they run? Minutes? How long can they walk? Hours? Days? Weeks? I'm an old man. I can't join you. But you keep walking, keep going, and never give in. Show those sadistic bastards that human willpower doesn't. I looked up from the book, my thoughts frozen by the sheer magnitude of that unimaginable cruelty and the scope of what had happened to humanity here. For once, the threat had not been outright lethal, but the existential crisis had still been inhuman. This time, people had done it to themselves. What happened here? Danny asked, seeing my face. I kept down a surprisingly powerful sob. Um, nothing relevant, I told him, looking up. There was no blue shift that I could discern, so the bacteria must have been cleansed. The moon was just coming up over the horizon, and I thought I saw numerous city-like patterns dotting its silvery landscape. But how long had they been there? How long had the cleansing system been running? Had something gone wrong with the return plan? Or had they chosen never to come back out of shame and horror at what they'd done? I looked ahead of us, to the east. The sun was gigantic and red, dominating the sky. Had the slow time bacteria cost the earth billions of years? Was the sun going red giant and expanding to consume the planet? 
I peered to the side, studying the moon. The patterns there looked gray and lifeless. Had humanity departed for the stars, or had they petered out on their dusty new rock? About out of willpower, I shook off my questions. I would never get answers, and those people, if they were still up there, would hardly help us. Not after what they'd done. My bare foot had become sliced and bloody, but I could hardly stop to deal with it. Looking back at our group, I noticed some stragglers. Come on, I shouted tiredly. Nobody gives up. Most of the straggling children sped up a little, but one struggled along, visibly limping. Danny, I said grimly, keep the pace. He nodded. I stood in place, huffing, and took a moment to bandage my foot with a strip torn from my shirt. The kids all seemed worried that I had stopped, but Danny barked at them to keep moving. Eventually, the limping boy, Ryan, if I remembered right, maybe nine years old, caught up to me. His entire face was bright red from exertion and dripping sweat. The wall of the fire was louder here and more audible without the group's crunching footfalls. I watched him until he reached me. I hurt my ankle, he gasped. Hold on to my arm, I offered, taking the pressure off his hurt leg as much as I could. We began staggering forward. We're going to make it, don't you worry. He had no breath for reply. I could feel the heat on our backs growing, and searing breezes began ruffling our clothes. I don't want to die, he said, unprompted. I looked and saw tears flowing down his face. You're not going to die. He gasped with resigned terror. We're not going fast enough. I set my jaw my thoughts on the people that had died on this world. I'm not going to leave you behind. Out of options, I bent down and had him climb up on my back. We are all getting out of this godforsaken place. I huffed forward, tapping into reserves I never knew I had. He was no baby and heavy on my back but I ignored the pain in my feet and the heavy weight in my muscles and pushed on until I looked further ahead and saw a scattering of children lying where they'd fallen from exhaustion. I couldn't carry them all. Get up, I screamed, still a hundred feet away from the first fallen child. She pushed herself up weakly. That's it. That's it! Get up! Get up! Keep going! Stumbling forward, she began to walk again, her head low and her eyes hollow. Which reminded me, I'd have given anything for a few eye workers. Those things would have walked the children right to the limits of their endurance without an issue. And thoughts like that, I'm sure, were what led that world to its fate. You, I shouted again, approaching a prone ten-year-old boy whose name I desperately wanted to remember. Get up. You're not going to die in this oven. 
All you have to do is walk another mile or two, and you can fall down and rest as long as you want. He still didn't move. Finally reaching him, I pushed him with my shoed foot. He groaned. Get up, goddammit! Trembling, he took my hand and started walking again after another push. Ahead, two more children lay stretched out on obsidian, and ahead of them, I saw four more collapsed in various positions. Even if I did get them up, we were moving too slowly. I could feel the blazing heat at our backs, and I dared not look. Get up, I screamed, desperate. Please, just get up. The first one we reached, a girl, tried to get up and fell back onto her wide plate of black glass. It was about then that the horrible tree of approaching decisions manifested itself to me. I'd burned all our spare time and the cleansing wall was nearly upon us. I couldn't save them all. Was this what the people on the moon had felt, unable to feed billions of people? They had to be left behind. I could carry one, but the others had to be left behind. I already had one boy on my back. Did he deserve to live simply because he had faltered first? Could I possibly live with putting him down and picking up another child? I became aware of an added wetness in my sweat. Tears? I hadn't cried in so long, and now here, forced to make the worst decision. It was simply happening, somewhere fuzzy, somewhere outside my cold and calculating survival instincts. Part of me felt the tragedy, but I couldn't feel that part of me. Not anymore. I could save one. Which one? One clung to my back, screaming as the corona at the base of the wall of fire began dancing toward us. Six children lay sprawled out before me and ahead of me. Should I choose by age? Youngest or oldest? Gender? Boy or girl? Or should I choose the smartest, the most capable I'd seen? No. I refused to accept it. It was a crappy, terrible solution, and it would hurt them all badly, but it might just... Handing the book to the boy on my back, I turned around, gripped the girl and the nearby boy by their arms and began dragging them. They screamed as they slid against sharp, angular obsidian, and traces of blood began soaking their clothes. But we were moving. In turn, we approached each of the other four fallen children, and I had them grip each other with all their remaining strength. They were young and small, thus they had been the first to fall, and that fact also made them draggable. Screaming at the top of my lungs from the strain, I pulled six crying children across shards of broken volcanic glass while one clung to my back 
and shouted continually for them to hold on. All I could see was the roiling, blazing bulwark slowly catching up to us, even licking at the shoes of the farthest boy now and then. If he were to lose his grip on the leg of the boy above him, even for a moment. Just pull. Just drag. Breathe. Foot down. Push. The other foot down. Push. The agony went on without end, but I would never. A perfectly straight line of pure red, like a laser, cut across my awareness, and a swath of despair followed the twinge of pain. I fell to one knee as the flare in my spine broached extreme levels of agony. I'd pulled something, or strained something, or simply reached the edge of my endurance. Sometimes there was simply no way out. I knew that. I did. But I could never accept the reality of it. But the bloodied and battered children did not slip into the flames and die. Given the break they'd needed, they staggered up and began running again. Ryan handed me the book and took off after them. Turning in amazement despite the searing torsion in my back, I saw them desperately charge toward Danny, who stood right next to a small oval in space. On the other side, children silently waved and shouted and motioned for them to come. Wasting no time, they tumbled through with a little push from Danny each. We'd made it. We hadn't lost a single person. Without the boy on my back, I could move a little easier, and I gripped the book tightly with one hand and my side with the other. It's still not big enough for us, Danny shouted as I approached, reaffirming his earlier unspoken concern. His eyes jumped to the wall of flame not twenty feet behind me. I came to a stop, swayed in front of him, and lifted the book with a pained gasp. Time for a wild guess, then. Without hesitation, I thrust it through the small oval portal. I waited a tick, and then pulled it back. I did this thrice more, and then... Space began ripping around the small rift, rapidly expanding the portal to three times its original size. Go, I told him. He nodded gravely and dove through. I waited as the heat and roar grew behind me to screaming intensity. I could just stay here, and the book, the device, whatever it was, would be destroyed with me. Or would it? I couldn't make a gesture like that unless I was certain. A little relieved, I tumbled through the portal. Get back, I roared, as blessedly cool forest air flowed around me like an eddy in a river. Remembering what I'd told them about shouted warnings, they all immediately darted away. I rolled forward, spine-sparking, body-filling agony as the portal ruptured further behind me. By the time I scrambled to a small hillock and looked back, it had torn out across the entire clearing. Beyond, I saw only descending flame. 
I lulled my head back on good old dirt and stared up at the trees. I'd done it. I'd avoided the choice. I'd found that elusive third option that people were so rarely afforded. All that training I'd given them and all the pain I'd ever gone through. It had saved these kids today. I laughed. It was a deep, satisfying thing, and I let it go on with all the relief, humor, and wonder I felt. The internal armor I'd lost was gone, but I no longer needed it. I hadn't been wrong, and it hadn't been my fault. Or maybe it had been, but I just didn't care anymore. At some point, life had to go on. And with time so short, life had to go on now. I had to go through with my plan and view the objective image of the book. I had to know what it truly was. I vaguely remember the children helping me up and a long, staggering journey back to the suburb before I sent them all off to get patched up and rest. I also remember a brief image of the several tequila bottles I had to buy to make my plan work. It was pretty simple, really. Down a nearly lethal amount of alcohol, wait until you're almost blacked out, and then, and only then, take out the dangerous image, draw it as quickly and as accurately as you can while so inebriated, and pass out. If you're lucky, you'll remember nothing, and your brain won't rupture trying to process the multidimensional image. Viewing it had almost killed Danny would have killed Danny without healing help. I awoke at some indeterminate time the next day, my entire body a hurricane of hangover pain, and my face in a pool of vomit that had come from my stomach and blood that had come from my eyes. But I was alive. I was alive, and I'd managed to draw what the book really looked like, or at least what limited sense I could make of what it looked like. It held the machine-like appearance of a complex hollow cylinder ringed by rods vertically and strange serrated blades horizontally. Within the device were countless fractal gears whose connections I simply couldn't comprehend. I should have known. It takes impossible geometry to produce impossible machines. As soon as I saw it, quite a few of our problems began making sense. This was no book at all, but rather some sort of incomprehensible multidimensional device. And, as I'd seen, it was absolutely related to the rupturing portals. Our plan to use the eye worker to get rid of it seemed rather simple and possibly unreliable now. But what other option did we have? I spent the day recovering from my extreme hangover and thinking about ways to get rid of the device. The portal out there, by my calculations, now had to be a mile and a half wide. If only I had more time. Whatever we were going to do, it would have to be with today's destination, no matter how lethal. And it would have to be tonight. Tomorrow, this entire region would rupture in a space 111 miles long. It would be far too late. If only I had more time. To be concluded.
More of Matt's work can be found at mattdemersky.com. More of Eunice's work can be found at blrf.org.